0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... Alright, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on US. Mintmobile.com switch. Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to fifteen dollars per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active mint customers by five thirty one twenty-four. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty-four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
1: The podcast that digs into the onstage works we love to make the offstage change we need. After all, that is why we theater. Today, we welcome playwright and actor Domenica Ferro alongside experts Joanna Kendall and Dr. May Lynn Reyes Rodriguez to discuss Domenica's beautiful play, Rinse Repeat. The play premiered off Broadway in 2019 at the Signature Theater Center. The story centers on Rachel, a Latinx college student battling an eating disorder, and her family, including her white architect father, Peter, her adopted Latino brother, teenage Brody, and her Latina lawyer mother, Joan, who also struggles with a less easily identified eating disorder of her own. The play begins when Rachel comes home for a trial weekend with her family after having spent months at an inpatient treatment center for her eating disorder. This episode does contain a lot of talk around eating disorders, their triggers, and their treatment, but we do our best to be gentle about all of it. For anyone who is sensitive to this content, I hope you will listen and take breaks when you need to and have a grounding plan in place. And now, rinse, repeat. Domenica, I am so excited to have you here. As you know, when I first read the play in 2019, it really just hit me like a ton of bricks in a good way. Um, It was a story that I hadn't seen before, um, certainly not on stage. And certainly, you know, I find it so telling that in the script you say, That the stage directions are important because so much is happening non-verbally here. Um, When we spoke in 2019, you told me that you had always intended to be an actor and only an actor, but that in studying acting, you were going to all these shows constantly. You never saw a show about eating disorders. And that when we do see stories about eating disorders in, in film or television, they're often you know, a blip in a storyline or they're criticized for being irresponsible because they're kind of glorifying eating disorders or they're triggering people who have it or they're just being kind of cliche. Um, So how did you go about writing a story both responsibly and authentically?
2: Firstly, thank you so much um, for saying that. Um, I really enjoyed getting to talk in 2019 and um, I'm so glad that the, that you were able to have that experience watching the play. Um, and that is a really great question. Um, the story of rinse repeat is not what happened to me, but it did start that way. It did start off as my life and then it morphed. Um, and I definitely have very personal experience with eating disorders, um, on several fronts and I don't claim to be completely recovered. I'm not, um, I'm work. It's something that's a part of my life and I, work on it every day to the best of my ability. Um, And something I have known to be true is that, and I think this is the case with many addictions. Unfortunately um, in society, we don't really consider an eating disorder as an addiction. Um, A lot of people see it as a choice, which is really frustrating. Um, And I, I've come to understand, you know, an addiction is never actually the problem. It's often like, we think it's a solution to whatever's going on. There's something deeper. There's a lot of deeper stuff happening that the the addiction is masking. Um, And Mm -hmm. for me, that was the experience of, you know, okay, this eating disorder on the surface seems to be like, that's what's really going on. If you just fix the eating disorder, everything's fine. But just fixing it is, it's a lot more complicated. um, Because there's all of these things that have come to a head and caused this problem to occur in the first place um and i felt like okay if i'm gonna look at this responsibly i can't just take a superficial look what i really wanted to show with this particular play was that there's this family has an illness and it's landing in the body of this girl which is a very Mm. common experience and there is a lot i wanted to really explore all of the triggers that are going on not just for for rachel the person who we. Think is suffering the only person suffering from the eating disorder, but also for her mother Joan and how this is a cycle because that's been at least my experience and one I've seen often. Um, mm-hmm. There is a cyclical nature to this, um, and I, right. I I think I've I've struggled with looking at you know there's talk of an eating disorder as it's anorexia, it's bulimia, um, it's binge eating disorder. And I think there's this like glorification a little bit of of, like clean eating because eating disorders are – something that we profit off of as a society. I mean, I have thought a lot about yes. why don't we want to talk about this? And it's like, well, how much money is made off the diet industry? Because it is the most successful failed industry in the world. And how much money is made off of <laughs> making women hate themselves? And, and, you know, really, truly. Yeah, the beauty industry, mm-hmm. the fitness industry, diet culture, all of 100%. it. Absolutely. And then also, like, if we look at just film and television, the way that actresses look, what is representation? I mean, if, if, if the industry is really going to Talk about eating disorders, well, then we'd have to look at the fact that probably a lot of women are having to go to crazy extremes to maintain a look that is just not achievable um, for the average person. Right. And we're showing that as like the norm. So I've often thought about, okay, well, why don't why don't we want to unpack this? Why don't we want to talk about this? Um, and because I felt like this wasn't happening often, I did want to do it in a way that felt say for the audience that they felt identified in some way, even if they themselves didn't suffer with an eating disorder so that people also understand, because there is a lot of stigma surrounding this, like, okay, well, I may not know what it is to have an eating disorder, but I do know what it is to not be accepted by my parents, and I know what I would do to make that happen, be it if I'm struggling with my Mm. sexuality Or if I'm struggling with another form of addiction or if I'm, you know, like the character of Rachel wants to do something other than what her mother wants for her career wise, like simple things that any person can identify with. Um, And with Rachel, it's because of all of the elements of her life. um, It caused this life threatening thing to happen. You can't just isolate the thing and be like, point the finger and say you're sick, you're bad, you're doing something. You just need to eat. It's that simple. That's something that I've yeah. heard too much in my life and I I've, I've heard parroted a lot and it's just either that or you look amazing. Um you've never looked better. I and mean, that's very common, <laughs> especially in Latin America. I found, you know, when I went home it was just like, "Oh my god, you know, I didn't have a period for 6 years and everyone was just like, "You look incredible. I thought you were going to be fat forever." There's a lot of glorification uh, and encouragement yes. of this addiction. So um, yes. I wanted to be able to look at the nuance of this as deeply as I could in a 90-minute play and keep it dramatically interesting and yeah. in all of those things. But yeah.
1: And I think that that's where perhaps you creating it responsibly is part and parcel of creating it authentically because it is so layered, because it manifests differently in each of these four people within the family. Um and honestly as part of society right like the yeah. you know her father mm-hmm. and the husband peter and his expectations it's also that not that he's a bad guy no. right it's that society has taught him this is what's attractive yeah. or what i'm supposed to think is attractive therefore i'm going to mold my wife to this um you know to this structure and then my wife is going to mold my daughter to this structure it's really um it's all intertwined it's all intertwined
2: absolutely and i think you know that was something that was really pivotal for a long time like that it was uh, the character of the mother um gets a lot of flack a lot of people um, get very angry and call her all sorts of names after the play. And I just Mm. was like, you know, that it was really struggling with like, well, this woman is, she's sick too. She's got a lot going on too. And, um, we need to really look at that. Um, I think a lot of it is also that we just expect so much from mothers in general. Um, and we're a lot harder on them than on fathers. And I found that no matter how Mm. overt, I mean, there was a lot, there's a line in the play where Peter directly says to Joan, is that what you wore? to court today, to work today. And she says, yeah, why? And it looks a little tight. And I remember being told like, oh, that line's going too far. I was like, it's not. Because the thing is, what's interesting is Joan does a tiny little misstep and the audience is like, oh my God. Peter can say some some really, you know, he can actively like take food away from his wife and the audience won't bat an eye because we are much more forgiving Mm -hmm. of fathers in general. And Rachel, to a degree, has that. She is very loving of her father. She doesn't really see the ways in which he um, expects her to parent him and um, brings her into the middle of their marriage and, and crosses a lot of boundaries, um, which makes her a parentified child. Yes. And I think she really does trust and love her father. And it's this shock at the end of the play when she kind of comes full circle and realizes, like, oh, wait, um, you've been – like, okay, you have – you're so good with me but you're in yeah you're a huge part of the problem because you're enabling mom and you also as my father and looking at you know what you find attractive you're modeling for me what it means to be an attractive woman to men men say this sometimes you know like some it won't certain things won't hit them until they think of, oh, well, I have a daughter. And, and you know, that's like something that comes off. And, well, this person is someone's daughter. Yes. This is, it's like, okay. But you know what? We're still human beings. And you cannot, it, it doesn't cut it anymore to treat your daughter and your wife differently because your daughter one day is going to grow up and realize, like, and she's going to be affected by the standards you yeah. hold your wife to.
1: The play really revolves around the mother-daughter relationship mm-hmm. between Joan, the mother, and Rachel, the daughter, And it's interesting because we need to talk about them separately and together. Like Rachel could have anorexia without a model from her mom. Joan could be restrictive and have children without eating Mm -hmm. problems. Why was it important for you to show both and how they interact? Once I decided that Rachel had anorexia,
2: I knew that there had to be another. I, I just couldn't write a play without looking at the complexities of, you know, there's various kinds of eating disorders in the world. And mm-hmm. I think the way we talk about clean eating, and I've seen it, you know, just discussed as like, you have so much discipline. You, It's this thing that is really like, oh, I wish I had your willpower. Um, and orthorexia, which a lot of people are not aware of. Um, I mean, it's the obsession with clean eating to the point where you are afraid of eating anything that veers off of what you deem a safe food. Um, and this mm-hmm. can be, it can be really, really intense. And also the thing about it is easily hidden. Um, especially in today's modern society, you can say you're allergic to gluten, you're vegan, you're dairy free, whatever it is, we've kind of, we, we've normalized, um, this this illness. When we were working on it as a cast, a lot of people did not know what the term orthorexia was. And I had to clarify it various times and, and people were learning about it. Um, and some people were...
0: Mm-hmm. And then everyone has
2: experience of like, oh, wait, do I, do I have this actually? Because um, I, there are certain <laughs> foods that I'm pretty afraid of. Um, so I did really want to bring awareness to that in general. And the decision to have it be in this particular family joan could not have orthorexia and rachel most likely would still end up having an eating disorder just because of the there are so many things for this character that are going on like the pressure Mm -hmm. also being the daughter of a first generation immigrant like there are a lot of pressures that are put on to succeed um you know joan Mm does talk about how she she did some writing in college but it's not like you know her parents did sacrifice everything to come here and give her this shot and she had to really make something of herself and she married a white man who was wealthy and his family definitely gave him a hard time for marrying her so she felt like she had to prove herself and as a latin woman growing up in this country she knows that things are going to be really hard for her daughter and she understands that in a way that her husband does not and so He doesn't understand why she puts so much pressure on her daughter, but she fully does because she knows that Rachel's going to experience reality in a very different way than Joan did. And and Mm -hmm. there's references in the play to, you know, Rachel feeling the sacrifice her mother made as a career woman to carry her, to have this time that she lost out in her career. Um, That was something that was really important to me to acknowledge um, in
1: the identities of these characters Yeah. I mean, that's actually was going to be my next question about like the way you blended this family so specifically of, you know, the white father, the Latina mother, a biological daughter and an adopted Mm -hmm. um, Latino son. You made a lot of choices that all contribute to the telling of this story. Well, there's there's a combination of, you know,
2: reading studies and learning a lot about, okay, what are the typical family models for an eating disorder, which kind of ties back to like, okay, well, what's up with, um, you know, Joan, Joan didn't have to have an eating disorder, um, but why was it important to include this? And I, 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 there's actually a, a, a family friend who lives in Ecuador and is, a, is a, a therapist, and she was saying how she was working with children's schools and... There was a problem that was coming up where like mothers um, and fathers would come in and be like, our, our child isn't eating, you know, she won't eat rice. And then the teacher was noticing this and is like, this is a big problem at lunches. And the mothers will be like, well, I tell them, you know, to to eat, like, please eat these foods. And, and then the teacher, the the therapist, my my mother's friend was like, okay, well, what do you eat? And then the mothers were like, oh, I, I would never touch that, you know, but that's, but I encourage them to. And it's like. And I remember when right. I heard that comment, and I was like, "Okay, I'm this. I knew this was in my play for a reason. This comes up. This is something that is often, unfortunately, this is this is a thing. These stories can be very generational, um, and it's in its genetics too. Like I, I, I know that I've encountered my own mother yes. blaming herself, and I'll, I'll just be like, you know, what, mom? Like, there's just a certain like, it's in our blood. It's in our DNA. Just like." Right. Any just like anxiety and depression is there's it's just the way the way the cookie
1: crumbles. Um, but back to- which also society is very new at acknowledging how in our DNA anxiety and depression mm-hmm. is like mental illness. It, it being treated as illness is still so new. And then you get into the subsets, like you said, um, of addiction disorders and eating disorders not being a choice. Yeah. So Everyone has to really reconceptualize uh, the way we think Absolutely. about these issues. Absolutely, I
2: mean the the DSM for a long time uh, described anorexia as the refusal to eat food, which is like, okay, well, mm. hmm, interesting because you're literally just in in this is mental health. You're, you're saying that it's a choice. But back to the question of you know the the family dynamics and the way uh, they were. The, that it is it is very specific in this play and you know one of the reasons is casting um you know i i am hispanic and i initially Mm -hmm. wrote the play just sort of like i wanted colorblind casting the way hamilton did i think i think that's the way of the future and i think it's a really great thing and it was really exciting as a latin actor to see like oh wait um i could play like eliza hamilton like that's that's pretty cool to know that that could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it may, it became very clear to me, you know, casting directors see five characters and they're going to assume a certain ethnicity. So I was like, okay, well, now I really need to work this into my play. I am a first generation immigrant. So my parents are both uh, born and raised in Ecuador, moved here. They were very young. My mother was 19 when she got married, 22 when she had me. Wow. Um, and I, I, do, I have definitely felt the pressures of assimilation in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and especially within the past year have been unpacking how assimilation in and of itself is a very strong form of racism um it's not mm-hmm. good growing up in america and and england i also grew up in england um did for me in ways of like okay how can i blend in how can i can i hide from the sun can i do these things and what is the fitting in so mm. that has been and something that is there's a lot of pressure put on, too, and and a lot of praise um, if you are Latin, at least in my experiences. If you're going to be with a, you know, white, blue-eyed man,
1: you kind of have won the lottery. My last question solely for you, Dominica, is that you played Rachel yes. in that run. And I'm wondering, you know, as you said in the beginning, um, that this is something as a person in the world you deal with every single day. So, how how did you cope with um, with getting inside of that character? You know, every single performance over and over again. What, if anything, did you learn about your own eating disorder by playing her? Um, how did you keep yourself safe?
2: Hmm. Thank you. That's a great question. One I haven't been asked and I'm really grateful to be asked because um, it was definitely a process. Um, I learned a lot from Rachel that I was not expecting to. Something that Rachel hmm. really teaches me um, and still honestly to this day inspires me in is the anger she expresses at her family at the end. Um, I I think as is common of uh, people who suffer with eating disorders, I am a very, um, repentant perfectionist and a people pleaser. Um, and I, I don't know that I've ever let it rip like that. I mean, Rachel goes into a rage blackout. She really, she figures things out and she just says every, she sees everything clearly and she knows she has to get out of here. And that was really, I mean, when the play, the run of the play ended and we got an extension. So that was a gift for me but I thought as a writer I was going to be like, my baby, I don't know what like what am I do with myself but actually it was like my body was mourning getting to perform Rachel. Getting to get that angry mm. eight times a week and have that expression was so important and cathartic and healing for me. And then keeping myself safe as someone who has struggled with disordered eating, it it was hard. I put a note in the play that's very important to me that says, you know, the actress is playing Joan and Rachel should never feel any pressure to maintain a certain weight to play these roles. Because I know for myself, when I had amenorrhea, and I was struggling to figure out what was going on and turning to doctors for every answer, I was not thin. I weighed at least 20 pounds more than I do now. And doctors were just like, oh, you're probably stressed. You're fine. And I even told them my mother thinks I'm under eating. Like, this is what's going on. Like, they had the key. And they just were like, no, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. And it wasn't until I came. Because the thing is, weight loss is you can have – weight has nothing to do with an eating disorder. I mean, absolutely nothing. And doctors really need to catch up to that. Yes. I had such wonderful support from my cast. I'm really lucky to have a very supportive family. And I think just really having a post-show thing for me, which was often... People in the theater would come up to me, like audience members, be like, it's so good to see you eating. Because always the actress who played Joan and I would afterwards, like, go and eat food together and just have that, th- that ritual of, of, of doing that. And actually during the play, I made sure to eat more than I had in a long time because I w- have, was expending a lot of energy doing this performance and just trying to stay on top of things um, and knowing that if there was any thing I feel internally that are my own insecurities, I can channel them into Rachel. I can let all of that go because of course I still have that. It's still present in me. By having played Rachel and intentionally kind of milking those moments, I can notice them within myself and be like, when they arise and be like, okay, that's an unhealthy part of myself talking. Let me Look at that. Let me journal about that. Let me talk to my therapist about that. Let me really be honest about this when it come like I think playing Rachel helped me notice when that was going on more. So it was really a healing experience.
1: Well that's amazing. I mean, we've talked I feel like rage is becoming a theme on this podcast, but we talk a lot about rage and and the necessity of it to that it's not the same as anger. That it is it is productive anger. It is anger focused at something. And I also um and we don't experience women – we don't let women
2: experience rage, rage. nearly enough. Absolutely. We accept it from men, and we – there's a great podcast where I heard it was talked you know, the Kavanaugh hearings, which were happening at the time that I did one of my first readings of *Rince* Repeat, and they very much informed the play, um, especially the ending, changing, shifting the blame – not blame, but just shifting responsibility from Joan to Peter. I was like, wait, I can't write a play about eating disorders that blames women. Um, but it's interesting to look at those hearings and how like he got to be very angry and was rewarded, was really, was rewarded with the Salem Supreme Court as a result. And whereas Dr. Blasey Ford, who was the person who had actually, in my opinion, been wronged, um, could not be angry. She had to be calm and even tempered in order to be listened to. And that's the dichotomy. That's what happens. Women, we, if we are rageful, we are dismissed. We're too emotional. Whereas men are like strong and righteous when they express their rage.
1: But the expression piece is so important. I've been doing some work, um, I don't know if anyone out there has heard of the Hoffman Institute, but look it up. Yes. Phenomenal. My father went there. Okay. So the Hoffman Institute is amazing and kind of like, it's a lot about internal investigation of patterns of behavior. And one of the things that they have you focus on, which I feel like in society we do not, is we focus on awareness and then we focus on changing it. Like, oh, now I know it's here, so now I can change it. But what we really need to do is that in-between step of the expression. We are not expressing and getting it out. And so what you're describing is that you were able to express through the play, which is so powerful.
0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And
1: so now that we're we're all going to express together, I want to welcome in our experts. Um, first, I want to welcome Dr. Maylin Reyes-Rodriguez, who is an associate clinical professor at the Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She is a licensed clinical psychologist with experience treating patients with eating disorders, Her research focuses on developing culturally appropriate interventions for Latinas with eating disorders, specifically methods that appropriately integrate family members. She's a columnist for La Noticia and the editor-in-chief of Puerto Rican Journal of Psychology. Welcome, (laughs) Maylin.
4: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, Rudy. And uh, Dominique, I think that you did a great job um, presenting the struggling of eating disorder in Latina. Um, I think that when I was reading through the play, I was like remembering some of my cases and um, and identifying the the stigma of having an eating disorder for Latinos. Um we, we know about the stigma about having mental health issue in the Latino population. However, uh, what I found with the Latinos is that the stigma of having an eating disorder is is greater than having, for example, depression and anxiety. Mm. Uh, and it's because I think in some, in, in some way that I am having an eating disorder and a disorder that is doesn't belong belong to me because I am not a white. So historically we have been associated the eating disorder to white females and and then as a Latina struggling with an eating disorder is like I am suffering from for something that is not from part of my ethnicity. So that mm. increased a lot the, the stigma of, of having an eating disorder. And the other piece that for me was amazing to see in the play was the integration of the family. Is is in some way the importance of engaging the family into the treatment because uh Everybody is affecting. It's not only the the patient who is affected by the eating disorder, but this is something that the entire family is is affected by the eating disorder. So if we wanted to provide an environment that can help the the patient to heal, we have to uh, integrate the family if, if it is possible. Part of my research working with Latinas is when we can include a family member Help to engage the patient into treatment and also retain the patient into treatment because that is another issue that we have with Latinas, um, that it is hard to engage in treatment, but also uh, they tend to abandon the treatment pretty quickly. She has something, but it was so hard to put the name that was an eating disorder.
1: Right, I think the word anorexia actually only appears one time in the entire play. Yes. So, yeah, that's very powerful. Well, Maylynn, we're going to get into all of that. I'm so excited to have you here. I want to introduce our listeners to our other expert, Joanna Kendell. Um, Joanna is the founder and CEO of the Alliance for Eating Disorders Awareness, which was founded in the year 2000. She is the immediate past president of the board of directors for the Eating Disorders Coalition. And in addition to leading a support group and mentoring those with eating disorders, Joanna has met with members of Congress as a part of her advocacy and was part of the, of the first ever Eating Disorders Roundtable at the White House she is also the author of a book about her own struggle with an eating disorder. Welcome, Joanna. Thank you so much, Ruthie. And
3: thank you um, all so much for, for this opportunity. And you know, I definitely echo what was said. The the play is is exceptional. It's um Really wonderful whenever there's opportunities to, um, you know, create much needed conversations and smash the stigma surrounding mental illness. I think what was so beautiful that you said earlier is that there's so much misinformation surrounding eating disorders that they're a disorder of choice, of vanity, um, where we know that they are serious mental illness. Um, the actually, it's, it's an incredible moment when Health and Human Services um, actually classified eating disorders as serious mental illness because. Um, like you and like many of us that have experienced eating disorders, you know, this is not a, this is not something where I looked out the window and I said, you know, it's a beautiful day in South Florida today. I think I'm going to have anorexia (laughs) nervosa now. Like that was never part of my journey or, nor Mm -hmm. anyone else's journey I can say. You know, we know that there's this perfect storm that comes together of, you know, genetics. We know the genetics play a key role in in the development of eating disorders. They run in families. Um, We know that there's um, like temperament traits. There's the coexisting of comorbid mental illness such as depression and anxiety. We know that anxiety is typically always present before the development of an eating disorder. And it's really interesting to see who eating disorders typically affect their, you know, as, as you said so beautifully before, it's individuals that are perfectionistic and people pleasers and type triple A personalities. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, one of the things that, that is just like sort of echoes in my head a lot is, you know, I was the kid that my parents never had to be concerned about. Like I was the good kid, you know? And again, it was, you know, for me, it was Really, classifying it by saying, you know, that that quote, "the path to hell is filled with good intentions." I thought that I was on this journey of bettering myself. Um, I was a professional ballet dancer. You can add that into that perfect storm. Um, oh wow! And yes, we know that that there's that you know that negative energy balance that gears genetics that that launches the development of the eating disorder. Um, and before you know it, something that I thought, oh, you know, like I'm doing this to be a better dancer to get a part. I was engaged in a fight that nearly almost, you know, cost me my life. And that affect 29 million Americans across the country. That's 9% of the U.S. population will experience some type of an eating disorder in their lifetime. Every 52 minutes, someone dies as a direct result of their eating disorder in this country. It costs the U.S. $64 billion a year in resources. It has huge economic burdens on our country. And yet... What I find myself to be so passionate about is is creating opportunities for education, for intervention, and for access to care. Because unfortunately, even though it has the second highest lethality rate of all psychiatric disorders, only one third of individuals that are experiencing eating disorders will ever get access to care. You know, and so for me, that was really why I think I connected, um, you know, so so beautifully with with the play. Something that I really also enjoyed is that you didn't sensationalize the eating disorder. You didn't talk about specific numbers or specific rituals. I'm confident that there were people that came to see the show and hopefully will come and see the show again and, or listen to this conversation that, you know, might have experienced their life, you know, experiencing orthorexic, um, you know, behaviors. And in that guise of I'm doing this to be healthy and I'm doing to this to be clean... And yet, unfortunately, what's happened is the diet industry has commandeered a lot of, of ways that people have to eat for medical conditions. For example, eating sugar-free because of their mm-hmm. diabetes, eating gluten-free because of their celiac. Fortunately, the diet industry has hijacked mm-hmm. these ways and said, hey, this is a way to insert, you know, lose right. weight, do this. So
1: Right. And that there are certain legitimate medical conditions that require this, you know, it's the appropriation of it. On to people without a diagnosis like that, that becomes problematic. I mean, Joanna, you fit right in on this podcast because mm. you just whipped out all the statistics that I had turned my notes to. So thank you for that, because I really do want to give some context as to how prevalent this is, how lethal it is, how important it is. Um, and you know, in talking about the layers of everything that's going on. Um, in the play one of the lines that really stuck with me was when um, when Rachel is like yelling at herself and trying to get herself to eat and she's going it's just food that's all it is just food but that clearly doesn't cover it you know it's it's like so I want to go I have different questions for each of you related to this Domenica, what is food in Rachel's mind? Because it's clearly not just food. No,
2: it's not. Um, And I think this is something that's been parroted at her or told to her or something she knows that her mother feels um, and something she, you know, and her mother has left her alone and she has to prove that she can do this because in Joan's eyes, it's just food. Sit down and eat lunch. Why can't you just do that? Um but it's it's not about the food. It's really not. And that's something that doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but there is so much more going on and it's all it's what the food represents and I do think a big part of it is control. Um when you have to ex- you know especially if you are Rachel, if you're someone who knows and yeah her mother did biologically carry her her mother who doesn't have a period who has a pretty bad eating disorder like what did it take for Joan to get pregnant a lot clearly and she didn't choose when she had another Mm -hmm. child she adopted that child because she was not going to get pregnant again so add that to the pressure that was also put on Rachel like be worth the sacrifice my body made my body that really struggles to function hormonally because I Mm Domenica know what that is um when your body will function hormonally because of a knee disorder. It is really hard to get that period back. It took me six years. When there is that much pressure put on you, there's a part of you that's going to be exploding inside. There's a part of you that's just going to be like, I-, I can't do this anymore. And I think Rachel's way of saying that without saying it was her disease and was her illness. And like, right. with food, you're controlling everything. So it makes sense to then control the one thing the one thing that you can, because so many other things are outside of her control. She's trying to control the fact that she wants to be a writer. She can't, she wants to be a writer. It's still living inside there. She can't squash that, but she can not eat or eat. She can do that. If she doesn't eat the food, she's disappointing everyone in her life. And if she does eat the food, she's disappointing herself because she's pretending that things are fine when they're really not. So it's very, very complicated
1: absolutely. And so Maylin, knowing that it's really not it's about so many more things than the food, than the act of eating, and yet, you know, part of the treatment plan for people with eating disorders is getting you to eat, is meeting with a dietitian. Is that how we should be treating things if it's so often about much bigger ideas?
4: Yeah, and, and it is true that it's, it's not only about food. I think that there is many layers when we are working with a patient, especially with anorexia and herbosa. Um, and yes, it is tricky because we have to help the patient to restore their weight uh, because we have those concerns about how medically stable is the patient. To mm-hmm. do the treatment, and also because it's affecting their cognitions and in how they can receive and accept the treatment, so it is it is hard uh, for the patient to to go into the goal of weight restoration. So. It's a combination of we know that it's hard and how we can provide the emotional support. And when I was uh, reading that line specifically, I was remember many parents asking the same to, to, the, to the patient. It's just food. You just need to eat. And how complicated it is to explain to parents that it's more than that and in in how they can provide the support that they need um, during the treatment process
1: absolutely joanna did you want to add about you know just the conception about is this about food is this not about food is it both
3: <laughs> so yeah absolutely so it, it, it it's it's definitely about both it has to be about both because you need food to live um and you know um and it's really difficult because, you know, with with recovery, um, you know, from, for example, substance use disorder or, or, d- or drug addiction, um, you can abstain from your drug of choice, quote unquote, when you're when you're when you're experiencing an eating disorder, recovering from an eating disorder, you cannot abstain from 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 food. It's a it's a right. different moderative you know, recovery where you need it to survive. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to remember that eating disorders are maladaptive coping mechanisms. It's how people maladaptively cope with depression, anxiety, trauma, transgenerational trauma, Mm -hmm. um, other concurrent personality disorders. That's how they live. And the mechanism is whether it's restricting, binging, and purging, compulsively overeating, clean eating, and we also have to remember like the reason why it's so important to to really normalize nutrition is because it doesn't matter what kind of eating disorder you're experiencing whether you're restricting or or actively binging you still have a malnourished brain and you mm-hmm. really cannot do much work unless you have that 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 amelioration of the malnutrition managed care companies are looking at at straight straight vitals or looking at weights which of course like has been has been said many times like Okay, let's definitely look beyond beyond the weight. They're looking at labs, yes. and the la- the things about eating disorders is you could be actually dying and have perfectly fine mm. labs. We have to remember mm. that labs are gross measures, right? They're not specific. So, again, it's we need to be looking beyond that, and someone needs to be you know r- like nourished. They need to have like you know an active brain to start working under un- on the underpinnings, Underlying. the sort of. The, the bottom of the iceberg, because the eating disorder really just is the top. And so that's why I think for so much of this conversation, it's been, this is not about the food. Well, yes, it is. And we need to be be nourished in order to, to deal with everything that's underneath, because if you just focus on re-nourishing, you're just going to have that revolving door, because it's not about that.
1: Right. But you also can't address the thing it is about without having the nourishment. Exactly That makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. I also want to just put out there for the record, you know, we've, Domenica said it earlier, um, that there is a spectrum of eating disorders and a spectrum of what people look like who have and struggle with eating disorders. This is not just the 85 pound white woman going in, you know, having heart problems. And, you know, I remember when I was in school being taught what this is. You should be looking out for people who are always cold. You should be looking out for people who are tired. You should be looking out if your friend is growing more hair, you know, all of these things. And not that those are not symptoms. It's just that those aren't the only mm-hmm. symptoms. That is not the only picture of this. You can be what society considers fat and have an eating Absolutely. disorder. You can be what society considers fat and have anorexia mm-hmm. as your eating disorder. Yes. It's not just that, oh, skinny people are anorexic and fat people are bingers. You know, this affects. And the research that that I did and that the professionals have done, I'm sure Maylin will echo this, that this affects people of all ages, of all ethnicities, of all genders. We are a bunch of women in this room talking about this, but this is by no means a women-only issue. It affects men, non-binary. And so I just want to put that out there and say that it might not, look what you think it looks like. It is still a problem. And so knowing that, I am curious if whether you're thinking something might be wrong with yourself or whether you are concerned about someone you love, what are the signs that we should be looking for?
4: The other issue is how we can raise the awareness on providers because sometimes they just Mm. look into some specific stereotype and not asking or assessing the eating disorder or referring the patient for a further evaluation because they don't fit into the stereotype. Uh, I remember um, doing an interview with a Latina and she mentioned about having three different encounters with different providers and saying, I think that I have bulimia and they didn't do anything, no refer, no further question. And she was mm. struggling with bulimia. Um, so I think that is raising the awareness for patients, family, but also for providers.
1: Yes. I learned that, um, in, as of 2016, the Association of American Medical Colleges found out that only 74% of schools that are in that association cover eating disorders in any way. So that still leaves 26% who don't talk about it at all and 74% who we don't really know to what degree they talk about yeah. it and, and the accuracy of that information. So
3: I will tell you across the board, it's it's actually less than twenty percent across the board oh, wow. uh, for all healthcare providers, nurses, doctors, dentists. Um, they are not giving given access to to. To that education, and you know, I've I've worked very closely with the American Medical Association, and I find myself getting very frustrated. It's like, well, doctors should know. One of the things that we're doing at the Alliance is working working with red residency programs specifically around um, residential, like doing um, like testing, because we know, unfortunately, they they um, teach for test, and it's also making sure that the information that they're given is 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 accurate. Like what Maylin said, is you know, give our arm our our primary care providers with these tools but also letting people know that, 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 that are out there that there, there are places where you can get really great information. Like at the Alliance, for example, we have um, the, the largest inclusive referral database for all levels of care for individuals seeking help for eating disorders, from therapists to dietitians, all the way up to acute medical stabilization. Um, we also have free weekly virtual support groups that are led by, by clinicians that are attended by people in all 50 states around the country and 43 wow. different countries around the world. Um, you don't have to go through this alone. And the one thing that I'm so... Grateful for this play, and so grateful for you, um, Domenica, is that there's people out there that have walked the walk and uh, that are on the other side. And you know, whether you describe the, if you prescribe to the word "recovered," that's that's where I landed, and it's a personal choice, or in recovery, or recovering, or in remission, whatever word works for you. If you Mm -hmm. are sitting there listening to this podcast, and I'm so, this is why I'm so damn grateful for the awareness that this play has has brought is that please know that you are not alone. Please know that there is help, that there is hope, that people live beyond their eating disorders, and specifically if you are a loved one. I Mm. think that, you know, unfortunately, we're given this misnomer that once you have an eating disorder, you will be struggling at that level for the rest of your life. Mm. That is not the case. Now, I will tell you, intervention is necessary. Access to care is important. This is not something that you can just will away like you can't will away a broken bone you cannot will away your eating disorder you deserve access to care in my opinion treatment cannot be a luxury it's a necessity because just like you can't stabilize your blood sugars if you have diabetes you cannot just fix the eating disorder like you can't fix anxiety and depression
2: i'm really grateful that you said that joanna because i know for myself like my mother had an eating disorder for um for at least a decade of my life. And she would say honestly longer because there was a period where she thought she was recovered, but she was just in that clean eating little bucket of just doing lots of cleanses and things. Um, But now my mother has this incredible relationship with food and it's so beautiful to see and it inspires me so much to know that it really is, it is really possible to get to that place and, and to believe in that and to also have Compassion for yourself. If you're not there yet, if you're not there yet, like that doesn't mean that you're bad. That doesn't mean like it, it. You're doing the best that you can, and you deserve love, and you deserve all of these things. It is a journey. It can be a lifelong journey, but it's one that is worth
3: taking and not giving up. I I yeah. can't agree more. Like I say this all the time to people: is that you don't recover to utopia. You recover mm-hmm. to life, and life has good moments and they have bad moments. And I will tell you recovery is absolutely not sunshine bunnies and rainbows you know and i think that for so long i avoided recovery because it was the complete opposite from the hell that i was in you know and so know that you know that yeah it's you're you're going to you know are you going to have bad body image days Mm -hmm. yeah because you're human and humans have that but the difference is like now which i'm sure you can relate to is there's there's moments where you know i wake up in the morning and i look in the mirror and i'm like oh wow and the difference is, is that I'll just put on more comfortable mm. clothes and I'll get on with my life. As when I was in the grips of my eating disorder, I would punish myself. I would go back to bed. Yeah. I couldn't do life. And so mm. it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be messy and it's going to be unbelievable. But no matter where you are, know that, there, that, that it does get better.
1: Something that you mentioned, Joanna, about access to treatment, that's where the real discrepancy lies. The discrepancy yeah. doesn't lie in the rates of eating disorders between populations and demographics, the the discrepancy lies within access. Um, I did want to to rewind a little bit though, because as we're saying that like labs can be, you know, not a great picture, the number on the scale is not a great indicator. Is just the self-reporting of the behavior, is that what we should be looking at In ourselves and the people we love, as the indicator that there is a problem, what is what is the criterion
4: that is accurate and up to date? I think that always I I look into the extreme. Right when we are moving into any kind of extreme, there is 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 there is a problem. I think that having a balance and. uh, if you don't feel comfortable with your eating pattern or with your self-esteem with your body image, that is time that you can seek help. We don't have to wait until having a full diagnostic of eating disorder to seek professional help. Uh, yes. I have had in the past uh, parents uh, reaching me to provide some kind of preventing treatment for their daughter because she was like struggling with some kind of body image issue. And I think mm-hmm. that just by having that approach from the beginning, uh, when we can see adolescent having issue with the body image issue, uh, we can prevent to develop an eating disorder. So I think that anytime that you don't feel comfortable uh, with whatever is, is going on in your life or you don't feel good about uh your emotions, uh, your feelings, your behavior—that is the time that you can seek uh, professional help. I know that for specifically for the Latino population, it's hard because there is the stigma. Uh, they don't want to feel that they are crazy, right? It's like I am not loca loco. So I think that we need to do more in terms of education that um, we all can have emotional issue, and it is okay to seek professional help.
2: I think something that's also important to is, you, you know, uh, Maylin, you talked about that woman who, who was bulimic and, and, you know, and yet nobody intervened. Um, I think listening to people in our lives is really important. When I was in school second year, I went to uh, to Tish and we had to do these poetry projects where we chose a topic and we came up with like three pieces that focus on the topic. And I did mine on eating disorders and it was like, absolutely Mm. a cry for help like it was complete I mean I was I was not doing well I that's when finally doctors started running real tests because I met their criteria of what an eating disorder looked like a year after I'd gone to them for help so at this point it wasn't very helpful because I was deep in it Um, and I had the hormones of a woman going through menopause and I was 19 years old And I did this performance um, and I did it in front of everyone. And it was basically me saying, I need help. And, you know, my teachers were just very praiseworthy of the acting. And I remember in my panel afterwards, one of the movement teachers was like, I'm concerned. I'm concerned and I think you need to get help. Um, And I remember one of my other acting teachers literally saying, like, you know, I don't really know about that, but your performance was really great. There was just this complete like sidestepping. And I know that the high school I went to in England, it was like an all-girls school and there were eating disorders everywhere. I mean, we were this. it was the second best private girls school. I mean, talk about privilege. It was, it was a great, great school. Um, and we were performing at just absurd, This the standards were ridiculous. Um, 95% of grades were all A's for students. And The school never, I mean, there were eating disorders everywhere and the school just, they didn't care because as long as we were performing well, what are their energy levels, I think would be something that's really important. Like, I know that when my eating disorder was really bad, I was Mm. falling asleep all the time. I was really struggling to stay awake um, and also struggling to fall asleep. Like, just you know as joanna said so powerfully like the brain neurons aren't working there are a lot of signs that you know can show you beyond how somebody looks like and you can still have somebody achieving surface level but they may be just not themselves i think when someone is just completely withdrawn from life um there's that's Mm -hmm. a sign that they're not fully there if you notice a loved one shifting and be concerned try don't you know, you may still be getting the results from, from your worker, from your like student, whatever it is. Um, but that, right. I mean, care about them on a human level. And if somebody, like the example Maylynn gave is, you know, asking for
1: help, like, dear God, like take, please pay attention. When you hear that, what is the thing to say? What is the helpful way to help someone get support? Yeah, I think um, such
3: a great question. I think something to remember is when you're talking to someone that you have concerns over or concerns um, with, is using um, I statements. You know, I'm concerned. I've noticed. I care. I love you. um, I can help whatever you need. The more that you attack, the more that the walls are going to go up. And I mean, that was definitely my experience of people, you know, out of love, caring, and compassion, you know, saying, like, You're so insert word. You're so this. You're so that. My eating disorder like threw that wall up faster than than you know than that I could blink. And we have to remember that you know the the person that's experiencing the eating disorder probably has this love hate relationship with their eating disorder. It's the thing that's keeping them afloat, and yet it's the thing that's probably making them sink at the same time. And so if you approach a loved one, and and this is something that I. I so, you know, because I work with parents across the country and they'll ask me loved ones, they'll say, you know, what would, what was something that someone could have said to you, your parents, your loved ones, your, you know, spouse, insert whatever. And I, I, I always come to this is, you know, say, I love you and I'm really concerned. And I'm really sorry that you're going through this because that again, puts the onus on the fact that this is not a disorder of choice an eating disorder happens to you. It's not it's not the opposite. And so, mm-hmm. you know, by by turning around and saying, and imagining if you will, we have an amazing member of, of our of our organization who equates eating disorders to brain cancer because it actually has a whole lot of similarities between us. Yes. And they <laughs> would, if someone was going through cancer, you wouldn't be like, You're crazy, mm-hmm. like
1: you need to do this.
3: It's unreally and, if, really and sorry. if they
1: were in remission and the cancer came back, you wouldn't say, Oh, it's all your fault, you didn't XYZ. I think that
3: because it's above the neck, there's this assumption that we should be able to control it. And if you are a friend of someone that has a child with an eating disorder, support them in the same way that you would if their child had cancer. Because I will tell you in some instances, the journey to recovery from an eating disorder is that there's no one way, right way, direct way. So oftentimes I will hear in loved ones support group is that I sometimes wish that they had a physical physical only disorder because then I would know that I would do X amount of like chemo, X amount of radiation or this medicine, and then it would hopefully be done. And with eating disorders, you have no idea.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean- We've already talked about so much, and I feel like the last two things I want to wrap up on, we could talk about for an hour each, but we will give them a little bit of attention. And the first thing is just about diet culture in general, um, because as we've been talking, you know, we've touched on anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, and orthorexia. And I say this because those are four distinct labeled conditions. There is a spectrum between all of it. The biggest environmental factor is this sociocultural aggrandizement of thinness. And is there, and I guess the first question is clinical and maybe it's just a yes or no answer. Mei is there any type of disciplined eating, restrictive eating, watching what you're eating, that is healthy? Or is it all just symptomatic and related to unhealthy eating?
4: Yeah, usually we don't recommend any kind of diet. I think that we need to learn how to eat in a balanced way. Food mm-hmm. is just food, and you can eat whatever you wanted to eat, if it is in moderation with the frequency, food portion, uh, but food is, 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 is a medicine for our body. Mm. So I think that um, diet is a risk factor for eating disorder. We need to stay away from dieting behavior. And I know that is so hard in this society that glorify the dieting behavior, uh, but I think that that is the the message. Uh, don't engage in any kind of diet behavior.
1: Yeah, and I also think you know it's interesting. I we talked about beauty ideals in the very first episode of this podcast ever, and I did a paper on this in college about how you know when we were less um, technologically linked globally, there were different beauty ideals all over the world, and certainly, particularly in Latinx countries, the voluptuous and curvy body was really coveted. And now we've gone, you know, it's converged to a single ideal body type and that single ideal body type is thinner and thinner and thinner. Um, So it also relates, you know, to media and to beauty ideals. And I guess, you know, how is the way that we can challenge diet culture?
3: First and foremost, one of the things that, that I know that, that we've seen even at the Alliance specifically over the last decade is the influence of social media specifically as compared to like the mass media. We know factually through research that um, social media has even more negative implications on body image, on the effects of the development of, of an eating disorder, because number one, you're surrounded by it. All the time. I mean, I can fully share that I am the person that the first thing that I do um, when I wake up in the morning is check my phone. The last thing that I do before I go to bed is check my phone. You know. Right. Also, we also believe that since so much of of so many of the people that that we follow on on the social channels are people that we know, um, we view that as more more credible sources. But. Also, at the same time, we're not taking into play how many filters have been put in, how many pictures were taken to post that one picture. You take 40 pictures to show one. And in a sense, we are comparing our everyday to the highlight reel of someone else, right? That's that that that's there. So, what I like to say to people all the time is, you know, be very mindful of your feed, curate your feed, watch who you watch who you follow. You know, you're allowed mm-hmm. to mute people, you're allowed to disengage from people, you're allowed to be very mindful. See how you feel after you've been on on those social channels. If you're feeling crappy about yourself, then maybe you need to be taking a look at who you're following what messages you're, you're you're consuming um and yeah i mean going back to your question about about the diet industry i mean it's not a you know 60 billion dollar industry for no for no reason mm-hmm. and unfortunately you know our world is dripping um, in diet culture in weight stigma in fat phobia because realistically there is no such thing as good food or bad foods food doesn't have value it's food I come from a mm. health at every size perspective that all foods fit, you know. Um, and when, when we start to put restrictions, that's when we allow this idea of like binge behavior to come in. Um, the number one behavior that leads to binging is restricting. We know that. And when you tell someone that they can't have it, it start, it starts to put the narrative in their in their in their mind that they need to have it. I'm just like when you tell a kid not to do something, it's the number one thing that they will do, <laughs> you know. And so. I would say be very mindful of of the media you consume. Also, when you see something that's not right, that doesn't align with your values, use use your voice. And on the flip side, when you find something that works really well, also utilize your voice. We do, I think, a much better job at, at, at when things are not good at using our voice but we don't necessarily lift up the things that are working. You know, like I, there's this really great, I know that, um, the, the um, Dove campaign has done a beautiful job over the years. They have a really great selfie video that just came out recently. And I, you know, I was like, I'm so happy that, that that's there. And so I, I sent a message to Dove. Like I Googled like the people and I sent and I said, thank you. And I got an email back saying it means a lot to hear. So when you see things that are, you know, that, that are going well, when you see people that are in all shapes and sizes that, that are, you know, that, that are out there using their voice, Praise them, you know, curating your feed, watching what you consume as far as like media and messaging and and follow people that fill your cup, lift you up. Um, that's, yeah, so that's beautiful
1: important. advice. Use your tweets positively. Um, there's a study from 2011 that said by age six, girls start to express concern about their own weight or shape. And 40 to 60 percent of girls age six to 12 are concerned about their weight. Of American elementary school girls who read magazines, 69% say that pictures influence mm. their concept of the ideal body weight, and 47% say that pictures make them want to lose weight.
2: I'm about to t- give people two things to not do on the other side of this. Um, I I have to say, like, it's very, very, very simple, and it's so important. Like, Please don't comment on the way that anybody looks. Just... Please stop. Like it's just—it's so easy to do. We have no idea what that means. Um, if you tell someone, like, "Oh my God, you've lost weight. You look great." You, you don't know what that's going to do to them. You also don't know what's going on. They might have really bad anxiety. They might have an eating disorder that you are unknowingly encouraging. They may be dealing with grief. They may be going through whatever it is. Um, and if somebody has gained or whatever it is, just just keep it to yourself. Um, Please, um, I think that if everyone practiced that, like, it really is just, it's none of our business, frankly, at the end of the day. Um, Again, unless you're a therapist treating someone and you've noticed something, like, and you're a professional, like, otherwise, just, there's no need. Like Madeleine said so beautifully, like, finding ways to eat everything in moderation is really great and demonizing any food group, just like there are some people who need less sugar to thrive mentally. You don't know how Oreos are going to affect someone. If they negatively affect you, that's cool. That's fine. They might affect that
1: other person really well. So just don't label foods a certain way. Maylin, what do you want to see happen?
4: I want to see more awareness about um, eating disorder across ethnicity race groups. Uh, I wanted to see cultural-sensitive treatment Um for Latino population, and I wanted to, to see access mm-hmm. to treatment. Uh, eating disorder treatment are very expensive, and especially when we are uh, talking about Latino population, sometimes they don't have health insurance, and because of that, that is a huge barrier to get access to treatment. So I think that we need to do more um, to provide more access to treatment.
1: Yeah. And then Joanna, to kind of round out that argument, what what are the policies that we should be supporting to increase access to get health insurance? To change, what are the uh, what is the legislation that is perhaps up in Washington that we should be paying attention to?
3: Sure, absolutely. So we have two pieces of legislation currently on the Hill. One is the Nutrition Care Act. Um, so unfortunately. Um, medical nutrition therapy is not covered by insurance in the care of eating disorders. They cover it for diabetes and end stage renal failure. Um, and, Trying to recover from an eating disorder without access to a dietitian that specialized in the treatment of eating disorders is like trying to drive a car with three tires and not the fourth. And so <laughs> what we see all the time is that, is that you know people will do this revolving door of treatment because they don't have access to a dietitian. So what um, the Nutrition Care Act, which is a completely bipartisan piece of legislation does, is it mandates medical nutrition therapy and the treatment of eating disorders and Medicare B. Um, individuals. And the reason why we started with Medicare is because not only we're seeing eating disorders like in, in individuals that are over a certain age, Also, if they're SSDI, if they're Social Security dependent, um, and tip, and I will tell you one fourth of individuals that experience eating disorders will end up on disability, just to give you an idea. Um, But also because Medicare is the gold standard of of payers of insurance. So once Medicare passes it, then Medicaid comes in TRICARE, ERISA plans, which is what um, most businesses have, um, and then private insurance. We need to have medical nutrition therapy in in the treatment of eating Mm -hmm. disorders. The other important piece of legislation that we have is the Serve Act, which would mandate um, TRICARE to pay for the treatment of eating disorders. Because currently the way that TRICARE, and TRICARE is the insurance for dependents of our loved ones in the armed services. So we're talking about people that give their mm. life for us to have freedom. Currently wow. the way that, that, that um, TRICARE is written, you can only get access to residential care if you're under the age of 21 years oh. old and experience anorexia nervosa. Oh. Which is such a small part of who experiences really, reading Really, really right,
1: tiny slice.
3: Um, for any information about current legislation, if you go to the Eating Disorders Coalition website, which is eatingdisorderscoalition.org, there's this really great phone-to-action mechanism on the homepage, and all you have to do is just put in your website, uh, your, your email, excuse me, and, and cell phone number, and you'll get text and emails when all you have to do is just add your name to a piece of legislation, yes. um, you know, which is so, so important.
1: And we'll put that in the show notes as well.
3: Excellent. And if you are experiencing an eating disorder or have a loved one that has an eating disorder, please know that there is help, that there is hope. Um, Call the Alliance. Reach out to the Alliance. Like I said, we have so many. We have the largest network of providers across the country, and we can... We can find um, clinicians that maybe take your insurance, take Medicare, take Medicaid, that do sliding scale if you don't have insurance. Um, And we also have our free weekly clinician-led support groups. We have five currently. We have two for individuals that are 18 and older that are experiencing all types of eating disorders. We have one that's uh, for the LGBTQ plus pro-recovery community. Um, We have one for loved ones, all loved ones of individuals, and one Mm. just for moms of individuals that, that are experiencing with eating disorders. So please know that you don't have to walk this journey alone, that there are resources out there. Um, but I just really, before we wrap up, I just really want to thank um, you, Ruthie, mm-hmm. for having this conversation about eating disorders. Um, to you, um, Dominica, just for writing such an important piece mm-hmm. of art. Um, I'm so excited for, for people to know more about it. By conversations like this and by, by work that you're doing, more conversations are happening and so the 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 me's and you's of the world can know that they're not alone um and that despite how terrible it is and despite how daunting recovery can be that it absolutely does get better
1: yeah well you took the words right out of my mouth if i can be of any service and contribution this is it so um we will put resources um, in the show notes we will put how you can order and read Domenica's. It's getting book. published soon actually. So there
2: this'll Yes this will be very timely and well done and representation matters which Exactly. Is why I wrote this play and why the family is a Latina family. Um it's really important for us to see ourselves and why one of the characters suffering from a disorder is a woman who's fifty plus. Like that it's just important for us to know that It affects so many groups of people. And Ruthie, thank you so much for doing
1: this. Thank you so much, Joanna, Maylin, Domenica, for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Why We Theater is a product of the Broadway Podcast Network. It's edited and mixed by Derek Gunther. If you like the show, subscribe at bpn.fm slash wwt or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review and tell your friends. Our theme music is by Benjamin Velez. Why We Theater is recorded in part on the traditional lands of the Wappinger and Lenape peoples. I acknowledge this land was unjustly taken from them and pay my respect to elders, both past and present. Special thanks to Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, Lee Silverman, Patrick Taylor, Tony Montaneri, Wesley Birdsall, Elena Mayer, and Suzanne Chipkin. For more resources for change, info about our guests, and more, visit us at whywetheater.com.
0: 18 plus.